So this morning, thank you, Paul, that's brilliant. This morning is, as Matt already said, it is the first of our series looking at the cross of Christ. We're in Lent, aren't we? How many people have given something up for Lent? Okay, a few, a few. How many people are doing something extra for Lent? Yeah, it's quite a good, it's a new thing, isn't it? Instead of giving something up, you commit to do something extra. It's kind of cool. So Lent is this series where we think about the cross. What is that about? Why did Jesus die? And we are starting a series this morning of four Sundays as we run up to Easter Sunday thinking about exactly that. But I want to kick off this morning with a question. As you look at the world this morning, I wonder what worries you the most. What are the things when you read the papers that dwell on your mind? What are the things that you think, this is a big problem? What worries you about our future, the future of the world, the future of human beings? Why don't you grab a moment and tell the person next to you your biggest worry while I just set some stuff up here? So what did you come up with? Some of you were like, oh, this is a bit of a depressing way to start a sermon. It's a bit grim. Because it's been quite a week, hasn't it? We've had a terrible terrorist attack. We've had political turmoil in our own country. I don't know about you, but I've totally lost track of who is voting for what this week. I have no idea anymore. But it's all, none of it feels good. We've had worries about knife crime and young people in our country. Worries about climate change. There is so much going on. I mean, frankly, people, if it wasn't for Wales winning the rugby, I'd be totally depressed. Anyone? Yeah, thank you. Tony and I are very happy. I'm sorry about you English folk, though. I hear that was quite disappointing. Half of my household was really excited by the rugby, but... I think, yeah, sorry, James, yeah, I'm getting glared at from the front. Okay, moving on. But those things that you talked about, what are the biggest worries that we have? I bet most of the things you discussed came down to one thing, and that is decisions that human beings have made. Decisions that we may or may not think are good decisions, bad decisions, but decisions that have an outcome. And so often the problems of this world, the things that worry us, are about things that humans have done, where they have made bad decisions and there's been an impact, and often it's on people much less, much more vulnerable than them. And we have recently witnessed a remarkable meltdown of leadership in so many arenas across the world, haven't we? And the the interesting question is, would any of us do any better? Would we have made any better decisions? Some of these problems that we face in the world are enormously complex and difficult. Are we going to make it? It reminds me of that quote from the old Terminator movie when one of the characters says exactly that. He says, are we going to make it? And the Terminator says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Is that true? Are human beings fatally flawed? What can be done to avoid this ending badly? Is there hope for us? 
And in this series, we want to look at God's rescue plan for human beings. We want to understand why it was necessary for Jesus to die and what that accomplished, what it brought off. We want to reflect on it and think, what did it mean then for the people who were there in the moment? But much more importantly, what does it mean now for us 2,000 odd years later? What's the relevance of it? And this morning, we really want to wonder at that question of why Jesus died. What was that about for us? And the thing about the cross is that for us as a people in the 21st century, we are a long way disconnected from a world where crucifixion happened. The cross for most of us is probably a symbol that we probably wear. How many of you have a cross that you wear maybe around your neck or cross earrings? Yeah, several of us do. You'll see celebrities wear them. It is probably something we encounter the most often as a fashion symbol, not as an instrument of torture. And in fact, the Gospels are incredibly brief when they describe what happened to Jesus. All four of the Gospels, when they say what happened, they just use three words. They just say, they crucified him. They don't go into any detail of what that means, what that was about. And there have to be two obvious reasons that the Gospels do that. And the first one is that crucifixion was there much more frequent. People knew exactly what it meant. They didn't need any extra detail. They didn't need any explanation in a way that we're, we're in quite a different place in our modern day and age. But the second reason has to be that there was something about what it did mean that was so horrible that you just don't want to go into great detail. You don't want to explain any more than that because just saying that is enough people know immediately the significance and the true horror of what that means. But for us, as a people who've lost connection, it's it's important to pause and remember what that actually does mean because 2,000 years later, we've become disconnected from it. And the truth is, as we know somewhere in our minds that crucifixion was unbelievably awful. It's still probably the most barbaric form of execution that's ever been used in this world. And it was used by the Romans from about the 6th century BC through to uh, about the 4th century AD. It was abolished by Constantine, the first Christian emperor. And it was the most horrible way to die. Because people were, were attached to the cross by nails that were deliberately put through places in the skeleton so that the weight of the human body could hang literally on your own bone structure. So there was nothing you could do about it. It took a long time for people to die. It was drawn out. In fact, the thing that usually killed people was they couldn't breathe because the weight of their own body as they hung meant that they couldn't fill their lungs properly. And the real cruelty of it is, is that to breathe is such a basic human instinct, you just have to do it. That people who were executed on the cross would instinctively and repeatedly push themselves back up with their feet, even though that was agonizing, so that they could breathe. And then fall, slip back down into the position. And what that meant is it dragged it out. It dragged it out. But as humans, we can't overcome that compulsion to breathe until we're physically incapable of doing it. And this meant that it was such a drawn-out way to die that sometimes the soldiers actually resorted to coming and breaking the legs of the people who'd been on the cross for days 
Because frankly, they got bored with the whole thing. They wanted to move on and it, it speeded up the end. It was really horrible. It was so horrendous that it was actually used as a deterrent. So Spartacus apparently famously would choose a prisoner and have them crucified in front of the army before an important battle. And he would say to his army, if you lose, this is what I'm going to do to you. And so they always won, apparently, or mostly. It was a good motivation. It was so awful that Julius Caesar was hailed as being merciful because he often ordered that the people who were going to be crucified had their throats cut before they were hung on the cross. And this was seen as a merciful act because it quickened their death. It rescued them from the long, prolonged agony that usually people would experience. It was horrible. So when we wear a cross, in a way... It's weird. We're wearing a symbol of the most barbaric form of capital punishment ever created. So why? Why do we do it? And aside from the physical pain and agony of the cross, it was also a total and complete humiliation. Prisoners were stripped naked before they were hung on the cross. You were literally exposed to anyone who walked by. The crosses were always sighted somewhere where it was a thoroughfare. People would walk by so they saw your humiliation. The Romans often used it particularly for people who'd had political aspirations. They wanted to be high up. They wanted to be important and influential. So the Romans said, fine, we'll make you high up and influential. We'll hang you up here and everyone will see you. It was utter humiliation and a sign of how far you had fallen from what your aspirations and your plans were. So for this to happen to Jesus, who said he was the son of God who had been teaching and bringing so many good things, bringing healing, bringing life and hope and future, this was unthinkable. And it was even more shocking to the Jewish people when you bear in mind that in Deuteronomy 21:23, Jewish law talks about prisoners who are executed and hung on a tree, and this passage was applied to crucifixion, and it says that those people are cursed by God. So to the Jewish people to see Jesus, who said he was the Messiah, who said he was the Son of God, hung on a cross, this was the most unthinkable and impossible thing to happen. Justin Welby, who's the current Archbishop of Canterbury, he calls it the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. He says, for God to be fully human and then to die an ignominious death reserved for a criminal seems so extraordinary and pointless as to be inexplicable. Indeed, he says, in the early centuries of Christianity, many of the accusations against the church started with the assumption that you could not seriously believe in a God who undertook such a terrible and dishonorable death. This was a huge issue to the people of the time that this happened. It should be a huge thing for us too. Pliny the Younger called Christianity a perverse and extravagant superstition, because it preached Christ crucified. That was such a ridiculous thing to claim, he thought. So why? Why on earth did Jesus die this way? Why did it have to happen? And why was it so significant? Why do we commemorate it thousands and thousands of years later? Why, as Matt said, is it the high point of our calendar? Why do we do that? 
And to understand why, you have to go right back to the beginning of the story. So I'm going to take you on a journey through the whole story arc of humanity. So, you know, sit back, get comfortable. Because you have to start at the beginning. You have to start right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And this is when God creates the earth. He creates the world. He creates all the things that we now see around us. And really importantly, what it says in Genesis 1 is that God starts with total chaos. He starts with disorder. Everything's all mixed up and mayhem. And from that, he creates order. He separates light and dark, water and land. And he creates the world and everything that's in it and people and all of those things. And what we read throughout that Genesis story is that God looks at what he's created and he says that it's good. He says it's good, it's good. He says it's very good when he makes humans. And that word, the Hebrew word that he's using there is this word tob. And it actually means more than just good. It has this sense that it's, it's perfect. It's, it's, it's in harmony. It's exactly the way it should be. God looks at it and says, this is just right. It's like I feel when I have stacked the dishwasher. It's exactly the way it should be, unlike other times. Anyway, it's just the way it should be. It's humans in community with the God who made them. God walks amongst them. Everything is in harmony. It's an amazing picture. But it doesn't last for long. Because human beings are made in the image of God, and that means we are sentient. We're thinking beings. We're curious. We're inquiring. We want to investigate stuff. We have our own minds. And no matter how perfect and brilliant the world that you create for people, if you don't give them choice, it becomes, it's a prison. That's not the way that God works. God gives us choices throughout the Bible. We see he never compels us to follow him. He gives us the choice. And in the Genesis story, there's only one choice that they're given. They're just, they're told, don't eat from one tree. They have everything. They have God's ideal. But they're told there's one tree they mustn't eat from, and it's the tree that's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know the story of Adam and Eve. We know that they are tempted by a snake who persuades them to take this fruit, and they eat it. They make a bad choice. Now, an interesting fact here, I said that the word, the Hebrew word for good, meaning God's ideal, is tob. The word for evil is the exact opposite, and it's a word, a Hebrew word called ra, and they are opposites like um, light and dark, day and night. They are polar opposites. So where good is God's ideal, everything the way it should be, evil is the exact opposite. And it's not just evil, it's that sense of distress and decay and destruction Everything that is the opposite of God's ideal is encompassed in that word. And Adam and Eve, human beings, have only experienced good, God's ideal, until the point that they make this bad decision. They make a decision to step out of God's instructions, God's advice for the best way of living. And what they do is they introduce a whole other thing into the world. They introduce this evil. They give evil the opportunity to exert its will and its influence in the world. And straight away we see that it changes everything. 
So life becomes harder. They experience toil. They experience pain. Difficult emotions like shame kick in. Things that just haven't been there before because they're not part of God's ideal for humanity. But we introduce them by our making bad choices. We give evil a way in. And there's a man called Paul who writes in the New Testament, he's writing a letter actually to the Romans years after Jesus has died. If you uh, have got a Bible and you want to look it up, it's Romans 5.12. He describes what happens and he describes it like this. He says, sin entered the world through one man. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So this is the first time I've actually used the English word sin and It's an important thing to pause on because that English word sin comes from old English, ancient language that means to have been found guilty of something. And we tend to use it to talk about a moral failure. If we've sinned, we've done something that's usually we would think really obviously wrong. But actually the words that it's used to translate in the Hebrew or the Greek, Paul is writing in Greek here, They actually have a more subtle meaning, and it opens up our understanding of what it means to to sin. And this word that's used in Romans 5.12 is the one most commonly used in the New Testament. And it's a word that means literally to miss the mark or to fall short. So it's, it's actually a word that was used in archery. I don't know if anybody ever shoots bows and arrows. But it literally meant when you, you had a good shot and you were going to hit the target, but it just fell short. It just didn't quite get there. That's what this word means. Interestingly, it's a word that was used in Greek literature, often in tragedy stories, and it's the word that describes the fatal flaw of a character, which usually, as the story pans out, is the thing that's going to lead to the tragic outcome. So this word describes humanity's fatal flaws, our tendency to have good intentions but to miss the mark, to not live up to what we want to, to not live up to what we hope to, to not live up to what we need to. So sin is behavior that undermines what God is trying to do. It undermines, usually without us meaning to, God's ideal that he longs to bring to the world. And as Paul says, we all do it. Sin is something that affects all people because all people sin. Paul says elsewhere, we all fall short, particularly if we're thinking about the ideals that God would have, the dream he has for humanity, the potential of what we could be if we could get this right is amazing. The trouble is, is we are all so, all too human and we get it wrong. And it's interesting to look a bit more, if if you'll bear with me, at that language in Romans 5.12, where it says, sin entered the world. Because that word that it uses to describe the world is a word that means order. It means the order that God created in our world. And when it says sin entered the world, literally it means, the, the Greek language says that it took possession of it. It overcame it. So what Paul is saying here is that the human tendency to step away from God's plan, to miss the mark, has overwhelmed and taken possession of God's order that he longs to bring to the world. So God created order. 
good things, everything as it should be, an ideal. But the actions of human beings threaten to return us to chaos and they introduce evil and they give evil a way to have an influence and things that God never intended to be part of our world like distress and destruction. And right from the beginning in Genesis as the human story unfolds, it is so clear that this is it's it's not going well. And as basically as humans increase in numbers, so does the level of chaos. And eventually you get to this crunch point in Genesis 6, 5, where God looks down at the human beings that he's created and his despair is all too apparent. And he says this, Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Feels a bit harsh, doesn't it? Only evil all the time. God's ideal seems very far away. And that word that's translated as wickedness, it could sound like God's just saying humans are naughty. But that word, like the word for evil, also means distress and destruction. That word for wickedness means the same. It means sadness, sorrow, distress. So God isn't just looking down and saying, blimey, they're a bit naughty. He's looking and he's devastated by what humans are bringing on themselves things that were never part of his ideal, that he never wanted them to experience. The consequences of their decisions are having terrible outcomes. And there's three main things, three main outcomes that are part of that. And the first one is the distance from God that it creates. Because the minute we choose to step off God's plan, off his path, we step away from God and it changes everything. And even in the Genesis story, the first thing we see after they've chosen to eat the fruit is this poignant story where God is walking in the garden and he's calling them and he's looking for them. And it's humans who are hiding. We create the distance because we make bad choices and we distance ourselves from God. And the story moves on with God trying and trying to come up with a way that he can be with his people. Effectively, he starts again with one race of people through one man, Abraham. And he he calls them to live apart. He sets them specific laws, clear and defined ways of living. He literally lays it all out for them. And the plan is that he'll dwell among them, that he gives them instructions to build this complex structure, the tabernacle, where he, God's spirit, can dwell so that he can be with his people. But right from the start, we see there's a problem. In Exodus 40, at the end, uh, verses 34 to 35, we see that when they've created that and the presence of God comes and inhabits that space, Moses, who at that stage is the guy who's leading the the Israelite, God's people, he can't enter it. He can't go in because the presence of God is so powerful, so holy, and humans are so far from it, he can't go in. So it's better, but it's not good. It's not God's ideal. He's alongside his people and he's leading them, but he's not in amongst them. It's not the harmony and the community and the relationship that he truly longs for. We're distant from God. We're separated. The second thing, of course, that we experience is death, physical death, but also spiritual death, because God had this amazing plan for us of what life could be like, life in communion with our creator, life in relationship with him. Jesus calls it more and better life than we ever dreamed of. But because we step out of that ideal, 
we walk away from it. And the third thing that we experience, of course, is this distress and destruction. And if you read the Old Testament, it's pretty grim. It feels like death and destruction is everywhere for many reasons. The people of God make loads of mistakes. They have these very precise rules that they have to live by and that they slip up all the time. And it seems like even the smallest slip can result in death. It's a harsh way to live. The news for other people is pretty harsh because in order to try and stay holy, God's people have to stay totally separate. This means that if they take over a land or a town, they are told they have to kill everyone else in it. They cannot risk the influence of another culture that might push them off God's path for them. It's, it's pretty grim. And of course, there's a massive dominance on animal sacrifice. If you ever read the Old Testament and thought, why is there all this stuff about how to kill bulls in there and about aromas that are pleasing to the Lord? It's, it feels a bit weird when you read it. And it's about what the people had to do to counteract all of their mistakes and errors so that they didn't have to die. Whenever they slip up, they have to offer an animal sacrifice, a pure animal who dies in their place. Leviticus 4.35 says, In this way, the priest makes atonement for the sins that they have committed. Literally, that means it covers them over. So the people were continually having to cover up their own shortcomings with the death of animals, literally scapegoats or scapesheep or scapebulls. And it's only a temporary solution, so they have to keep doing it, keep doing it. It is far, far from God's ideal. It is a sin-soaked planet. And it's still sin-soaked now because of the basic struggle that we have as humans to live God's way. So what's God going to do about it? Think about it. Imagine that someone you loved was separated from you by a great distance. Now imagine that they were going through torment, pain, that they were making bad decisions, that you could see it was going somewhere badly wrong for them and it was only going to get worse. Wouldn't you do everything you could to cross that distance and get to them and somehow help? And that's exactly what God does. But it takes something shocking to resolve the predicament that we've got ourselves into Let's look at the writings of another guy in the New Testament. This is John. He's the guy who wrote the gospel, but this is a letter he writes later in the New Testament. It's 1 John 4, 9 to 10, and I'm reading it from the message. He says, this is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. He sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. God sends his one and only son into the world. Literally, it means he sent him away as a messenger. It's the word from which we get apostle. So he sends him in the world to be a messenger, but more than just that. He sends him to die, to be sacrificed. That's, that's the same sense that those animals were sacrificed in Leviticus. It's to atone for, to cover up with, to deal with, to appease the sins and mistakes that humans have made. He's sent to die in the place of someone else, actually quite a lot of other people, all of us and the rest of humanity. So to deal with all our sin, a human has to die, but not just any human. God in human form 
and something amazingly powerful can happen as a result. Jesus' death had a unique impact. John writes in 1 John 2, 2, again from the message, he says, When Jesus served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for good, not only ours, but the whole world's. So if you read the gospel accounts, you could say, why did Jesus die? He died because the people wanted it, because he he annoyed a bunch of people, the high priests who wanted him to die. You could say that that's why it happened. Incidentally, it's kind of ironic that Jesus died because of people making a mistake and going off God's path, which led to the thing which was actually designed to deal with the fact that they'd made a mistake and gone off God's path. Something to ponder later on. But the thing is, Jesus and God always knew from the start that this would be necessary. This was the plan. Jesus dying as a human for the sins of all humans. He takes our punishment. And the the magnitude and the horror of what he does tells us something about the enormity of the problem that he's trying to solve. This is an amazing solution to a huge problem. And Paul, back to Paul again, he writes in Romans 5, 9 about the impact, the outcome, because that's really important. And Romans 5, 9 says, we have now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' blood. What Jesus did justified us. What that means, literally, is that we are shown as though we were righteous, So we are actually so messed up, we get loads of stuff wrong, we are very human. But through what Jesus did, we are shown as though we were as righteous as God is. It's an amazing thing. Because of what Jesus did, it's as though our sins and shortcomings and failings no longer exist. In fact, there's an ancient song in the Psalms that says, it's like he removes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west further than far. So we are no longer held back or limited or crushed by the weight of our own failings and mistakes. We're forgiven. We can be free. Mark's gospel records Jesus' own words explaining why he came. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. What's interesting is that the people at the time, they knew they needed help. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were in exile. Politically, they were under the control of the Romans. They thought what they were waiting for was some kind of um, military warrior who was going to come and free them from their physical captivity. But they'd failed to understand a much bigger problem that threatened the future of the whole human race the impact of their sins and wrongdoings. Jesus says he came as a ransom. A ransom is money you give to free someone who's in captivity. And that's what he came to do. God's people were captive. They were held in distress. They were in a chaos of their own making. We live in a chaos that is humanity's own making. But now we can be free. We have an opportunity We're not crushed. We're not trapped by those things. Because the truth is, this affects all of us too. We are all in this room human beings. We all get things wrong. Some of us here this morning are probably far too aware of our own shortcomings, our own failings, our own weaknesses. Maybe those things that you know that you've done recently where you've really messed up. 
things you've done or said to people, people you've hurt, things that just haven't come out the way that you hoped. Maybe there's things that you're just aware you fall short in. Can you ever be as good a parent as you would like to be, as good a friend as you would like to be, as good a follower of Jesus as you would like to be? We're so aware a lot of the time of how we fall short. Our ideals, our aims, we don't quite hit them. Paul puts it beautifully in a letter. He, this letter he writes to the Romans. This is um, Romans 7, 17 to 20 from the message. Many of us, I certainly do, many of us, you'll, um, you'll uh, empathize with what he's saying here. He says, I know the law, but I still can't keep it. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. That's the story of a flawed humanity. And it's the story of what runs the risk of allowing evil as a stronghold, a hand in our world. But we don't need to fear that because Jesus brought off this victory that dealt with that, that offered us a solution, that offered us freedom. The cross is not reminding us how rubbish we are. It's about something totally different. It's about reminding us how free we can be because of the God who loves us and because of what he did. What Jesus did was the most personal act of rescue from a God who longs to have an amazingly personal relationship with every single one of us. He demolished the distance. He gave everything to make it possible for us to be with him. Justin Welby says later on in in, uh, his essay on the cross, he says, the cross is the moment of deepest encounter and most radical change. God is crucified. My friend died in some way for me. Merely writing or reading these words together in one sentence is overwhelming. A person caught by the implications of the cross will be a person who has found the fullness of the life which is the gift of God. Did you know that this morning, that you're free? That yes, you are imperfect. Yes, you are human. Yes, you get things wrong. Yes, you mess up. But it's okay. You are good enough because the God who loves you so much has bridged the gap that we would otherwise have introduced by our own failings and shortcomings. God looks at you and that's not what he sees. We look at ourselves and all we see is all the things that aren't good enough. That's not what God sees. He sees potential. He sees hope. He sees future. He sees the possibility through him flowing through you of how he can have his influence on this world. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus died, it released the power of God. How? Through us. It's an amazing story of God turning around the story of the human race. We're forgiven. And we don't need to fear evil. 
we still see evil in the world. The cross was not the final act in this story. There will be one when God will return to the world and eradicate and be all evil forever. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But it was the decisive act. In that moment, love won. And it won in the most amazing way because it was something that looked like a total loss. It looked like failure. But love was willing to give up everything to save us. And that's why it was such a decisive victory. We don't need to fear evil because there is a much stronger power in this world that's active now. And it's active through us because of God's love and his gift that changed everything. So that's why no matter how bleak things look, all the things that you talked about at the beginning when I got up here, we are not doomed. This story is not going to end badly. Jesus changed the ending and he changed it thousands of years ago because this was a decisive act that changed everything. Evil can never win because good already did. God already did. So why don't we stand? We're going to take a moment before we close today just to wonder Before you go back to your busy life and to the world that's out there and all the things you need to do, we're going to take a moment just to wonder at what this means. And most of all today, for what it means for us. Because God wants to whisper something over you today about the truth of what this means for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, if you're comfortable to do this, just to close your eyes because, you know, we're in a sports hall and it's good to just forget that for a minute. You might want to hold your hands out to God If you're visiting us this morning and you're not sure what that's all about, it is just a sign of our surrender. It's a sign of saying, God, fill us. We're willing for you to to speak to us, to whisper things over us. We need you this morning. So why don't you close your eyes and hold your hands out if you're comfortable doing that. And I'm going to read some words to you, which is some more words that Paul wrote. They are it's from Ephesians 1. If you want to look it up later, it's Ephesians 1 chapters, uh, verses 3 to 14. And I've adjusted them slightly because this is a message God wants to give to each and every single one of you this morning. This is a personal message to you. What a blessing God is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ. And he takes you to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had you in mind. He had settled on you as the focus of his love for you to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt you into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted you to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift given by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the cross. You are free. You're free of penalties, free of punishments chalked up by your misdeeds. And you're not just barely free. You are abundantly free. 
He thought of everything. He provided for everything you could possibly need. He let you in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ. A long-range plan in which everything would be brought together, summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before you first heard of Christ and got your hopes up, he had his eye on you. He had designs on you for glorious living, part of his overall purpose that he's working out in everything and everyone. It is in Christ that you, once you heard this truth and believed it, you found yourself home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This is a reminder that you'll get everything God has planned for you, a praising and a glorious life. So I wonder what God is saying to you this morning, what he whispered over you as you stood. In a minute, we're going to sing another song, but I want to give you a chance to respond because I know God is speaking to people this morning. And some of us here have never responded to Jesus' story before. Some of us, this is the first time maybe you've even been to church, you've never heard the story of Jesus and how much he loved you. Some of you, maybe you have, but you've never understood it before. And right now, God is saying, you need to respond to this. You need to give your life to me. Because you know what? Your story only becomes the full story that it could be when you're connected to the story maker, the God who can give you more and better life than you ever dreamed of. So if that's you right now, why don't you just raise your hand and I'm going to pray. So right now, as you stood there, raise your hand. And maybe here this morning, you are so aware of your weaknesses, your shortcomings, the fact that you are not perfect. And God wants to speak to you he loves you to tell you that he's got it covered so I'm going to pray for you too and we have time and space here to come and pray with you individually if you would like prayer and in particular I want to say that I believe there are some people here this morning who particularly fear the power of evil in their life they feel like there are things in their life that are not God's ideal Maybe there's influences, maybe other people are speaking something over you and you feel sure that isn't what God wants for your life and it's definitely not what you want. So come down to the front and we're going to pray. We would love to pray with you individually. So Father God, we pray for each and every person in this room and we are grateful for what you did for us. We're grateful for the victory that you accomplished. We're grateful for your grace and your mercy, that you loved us enough to rescue us from our own sin, to pull off this victory. Lord God, we pray for every person in this room who has made a new commitment to you today. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit in their hearts, that you would change their life this morning and that through them you would bring a change and a transformation to the world that they live in. And we pray for each and every one of us who needs something more from you this morning, who need that hope. We 
to know the reality of your victory in our life. Lord God, thank you for what we do. We just pray your blessing on each and every person this morning.